Okay, this should be fun. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Data Driven Podcast, sponsored by Expresso.ai. Expresso is a lifecycle management platform for AI and machine learning applications. It's built on an integrated set of frameworks and accelerators to help data scientists build cognitive solutions quickly and easily. I'm excited today. We are joined by Tristan Riyarn. I butchered it. I'm sorry, Tristan. A co-founder and the CEO of Hasty.ai. Tristan, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It is super great to have you here. Before we jump into sort of the main topics, can we get a little bit of your personal background for some context? Yeah, sure. I'm originally South African. I'm on the business side of things, so I studied a business undergrad. Okay. And uh, my German wife imported me to Berlin at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I did my MBA here a while ago and afterwards fell in love with the startup scene. So worked in a range of startups all in the industrial space in Germany, um, where I ran into the problem that we're solving with Hasty as well as my current co-founders. Can I ask you this? Are you a German speaker? A bad German speaker. Let's say this. Yeah, so, I mean, so the Germans would say I don't have Fachdeutsch, which means I'm not speaking clean German for, for business purposes. So I, I tend to stay away when I'm in business calls, but I can I can have a beer in German and uh, dinner. Fair enough. Fair That's enough. Nice. Look, I think bilingualism is really interesting, right? I speak Japanese. It's really good, okay. but it's probably the same type of Japanese that you speak German. I can sit in a business meeting and understand what's going on, right? Yes. But I hesitate to delve into sort of technical concepts because it's just easier for me in English. Is that fair? Yeah. Also, I think that um, it's dangerous to underestimate, underestimate nuance. Yeah, nuance for sure. Language. For sure. And what people are not saying often is very important. Yeah. And that's probably not only language, but culture. Absolutely. I mean, look, we could spend an hour and a half talking about how culture is deeply embedded in language. I know this, like mm -hmm. we talk about this all the time. In Japanese, right, if somebody's, if you ask somebody for a favor or to do something for you and they say, kento sasete kudasai, which means please let me think about it, just literally translated, what it really means is absolutely positively not. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. Yeah, but you can't say no, right? No, but so. you can't say no, so you just say please let me think about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, anyway, so Hasty, what is the sort of genesis of Hasty? What's it trying to solve and how does it work? Yeah, maybe it's best to start with why we started it and where. Yeah. Um, we were working in the German manufacturing sector and we had a bunch of consulting projects that we were doing um, in a past life where we were trying to do things like quality assurance and manufacturing or sorting tasks or um, damage assessment on trailers. And we kept on running into the same sort of roadblocks, which was, you know, the client didn't want to share the data with an external party because, you know, there's a perceived importance on, on that data, even if it's photos of their products that they're selling to customers anyway. Right. That dead asset is something that they deem is valuable and you can't share it. The subject matter in those images was non-trivial. So, it's not pictures of cats, but it's like wear patterns on machined parts or um, really specific parts that have very subtle differences between them. 
And finally, the image task was non-trivial. So, you know, it's it's not just is this thing existing in the image, but give me more information about that specific thing you're trying to figure out in the image. So you have to label this in quite a detailed way. And the combination of the three meant that my co-founder Kostya was labeling data late at night and on weekends to try and get these proof of concepts through the door. And uh, ultimately, we, we couldn't get there. So we thought there should be a better way to do this. And uh, we thought there was a way to change, not the technology, the technology works, but the process, the process in which it's built to bring the neural network into the loop earlier on, to utilize that neural, neural network for, in the first case, automating a ton of this manual work, but in the second case, giving feedback to the user on what's working and what's not working. So we like to think that we're bringing agile methodology to machine learning in a way that users are getting feedback from the data that is actionable. So is my annotation strategy working? How many images should we label? How's the model performing? How does that change over time? These are great insights for any ML team. There's so much stuff to unpack there. Can you tell me a little bit about how the process changed? In other words, what was your co-founder doing before when you said, if I remember correctly, he was labeling the data until two, three o'clock in the morning. So how was that happening, right? And how does it happen now? Like, How does that process get changed through technology? Yeah, great question. So there is, in the end of the day, there's no real substitute for a good ground truth data set. So yeah. a good reference tra uh, training data set that uh, a machine learning model can reference. Okay. So if we go with that premise, there's a few ways to get your start or get a training set that's useful. You can try transferred learning, which means you're taking a data set that's been labeled in an adjacent domain and apply it to your domain. Mm -hmm. But given that we're in manufacturing and logistics, the availability of data sets that were relevant for us is extremely low. And the success rate that we've seen at scale when you're trying to do transferred learning isn't at a place where it's production ready yet. So what that means is that you have to label this data manually, which literally means that somebody's sitting there and drawing with a, with a pen or mask a polygon or a mask around each individual object. So you're literally sitting there outlining objects as if you would do it in Photoshop. Right. The wow. second step is, so you do this for thousands of images and teams would label 10,000 images over the course of three or four months, train their first model, put it into production, and then realize, hmm, it's not performing how we expected. Um, we can't go to production. Let's jump in for a second. Mm -hmm. In my mind, like when I picture machinery, I picture gears. I don't know why, yeah. and, and particularly when you talk about wear and tear on machinery, I know mm -hmm. it's a simplification, you know, but two gears that are kind of gearing together and you want to check the wear on them, right? If you have to mm -hmm. manually label thousands of these things, like you said, it could take months and tons of people to do it. Mm -hmm. And if at the end of the day, you don't get the results that you're expecting, you have to kind of go back and do it again. And Look, you know this from doing any manual task that you do. At the beginning, you're really detail-oriented, but 7,000th time in, you're just like, oh, never mind. I'd rather be watching YouTube or football or something, right? And that's just a normal human thing. Mm -hmm. So how does technology fix that? I mean, that's fair, right? And it's not very agile mm -hmm. either. Is that fair too? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so ahead. you're spot on there. Um, I think 
the average person might not have empathy for how tough it is to oh. create the neural networks that do things like autonomous driving. It's really grunt work. Oh my God, it's, it's so hard. Go ahead. And we're not good at repetitive tasks, no. humans. No. Not at all. It's not our forte. We're, we're good at reviewing things though. So what we've done at Hasty is um, we scale up a neural network from the 10th image onwards. And we bring that neural network into the loop. So what that means is you, let's take your gear example. Yep. You would label 10 images with both the gear as well as the damage on the gear. And after 10 images, we say, okay, we think you're labeling gears and the damage. This is where we think the mask should go. What the user then does is says, okay, um, almost, I'll accept that suggestion, but I'm gonna adjust it a little bit. And I'm gonna adjust this as well. So they, they, they're doing a review and accept workflow as opposed to create workflow, which is a lot faster and easier. And we take that information into account and retrain. Then the next image. So you have 10 images of something, right? A gear, like you said, that has mm -hmm. some wear on it, right? Does the uh -huh. technology itself using artificial intelligence look at that or does the user himself or herself kind of start labeling things 10 times? You start with the user themselves labeling 10 times. Uh, we have some tools that make that faster. So we've got things like our Atom tool, okay, which is a workflow that's fairly similar to uh, Photoshop's uh, Magic Wand, except Magic Wand is scaling this on colors. With our tool, we actually are using a neural network for that, but it's fairly heavily supervised by the user's interaction. Okay. And then, so you take these 10 images and then you go back to the user, mm -hmm. probably in real time, right? And say, mm -hmm. here's what we think is happening. Give us another mm -hmm. 10,000 images and they can give you all those other images and then you can run through them. How long does that take? And then do they get back a, a solution or at least a suggestion that says, Here's what we think is happening. And then you're saying they go back and then maybe adjust their initial labeling. Yeah, so we won't run all 10,000 images immediately because the results you'll get will probably be a disaster. Okay. What we do is the human's quite heavily in the loop. And you can think of it if you have to train a child how to identify something. Your yep. supervision of that and correction of that is relatively heavy in the beginning. Absolutely. And it gets less and less over time. So from image 10, you're going to get the um, suggestion from the neural network and it's likely going to be terrible. Yeah, yep. that's fine. But about image 100, so we did it over the weekend. We had a pitch for a very large client and we did it over the, the weekend with uh, PCBs. Okay. So we took a bunch of photos of Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and we were identifying the components on the Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. And after 116 images, we now have a model that can reliably identify the components and put a perfect mask on each component. Okay. The way we did that is I labeled the first 15 images, I think completely manually, which took about 15 minutes per image. And then the neural network started making suggestions and we just got faster and faster and faster and faster. And now we're at a point where it takes 20 seconds to label an image. And we had 115 images. Now, if we carry on with that flow at 20 seconds per image and we get up to 500 images, right. we're likely to be at a point where the model's strong enough to do what your, what your imagination was um, imagining, yeah. imagining, and then automatically label 10,000 images. So you then have a very large data set. The question then comes, how do you know that's a clean data set? Right. We have a second flow, which is the way it traditionally happens in the sector is um, they get people to label the same image five times. Okay. 
and they do a consensus scoring between those five annotators. And they do it based on the reputation. So if somebody's known to be a good annotator, they get a higher weight to the consensus. Right. We do the same thing, but with a neural network. We then have an additional neural network on top of it that says, how likely is it that this is in fact a mistake? And we then give that result to the user with most likely mistake first. What right. that means is that as a user of Hasty, you're not looking for mistakes in your data set. You're fixing ones that the neural network found, which is a lot faster. Yeah, I'm just dumbfounded by what this is doing. And this is all image related, right? Yeah, we're focusing on image and video. Uh, we'll stay in our lane for that. So there's enough to unpack there. Yeah, I mean, so when you say on video as well, does that mean you can take a look at a running video, have somebody label that video? Is it frame by frame? Like, how does that work? Or is it while it's moving? And then you can do the same thing with video that you can do with, with a still photo? Almost. Um, to, there's different ways to label video. Tell so me. the first thing you'll do is activity recognition. So which section of this video is relevant for me? So right. we can think the classic example is security footage. 99% of that security footage is useless. Yeah, You just want to focus on the parts where something's happening. Right. So there's one way to do this. You won't do that frame by frame, but you'll do that in sections. So we can think when you're in a photo editor and you're highlighting the part of a clip that you want to work on, the interface is fairly similar. So you get the relevant segment of the video. From there, you pass that into frames, which then the flow is very similar as if you were labeling images. And the one difference between doing this with images um, to video is in video, it's often the topic is object tracking. So yep. it's not only important that there's a football player on the field, but it's that that's Cristiano Ronaldo. And I want to know when Cristiano Ronaldo enters the frame and leaves the frame. So the fact that it's a specific instance of an instance, so a unique instance, right. uh, is relevant in video, which is often less relevant in image. Right, because the image itself is, is by definition, it's relevant. Otherwise, you wouldn't be looking at it. Yes. Is that fair as well? Yeah, OK. I'm just blown away by this. I want to get back to this concept that you mentioned earlier, kind of in passing. I think it's kind of important. You yeah. just sort of threw away this line that said, if the data is clean. Yeah. I'm laughing because you must spend a ton of time trying to explain to people that if the data is not clean, that the output is, is garbage. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, in this particular case, it's very dangerous, right? Like, Let's say you're looking at video of a car crash, mm -hmm. right? And trying to make determinations, whether it's insurance related or just safety related, all that kind of stuff, right? You're labeling all this stuff, but the data that the data output that you get because of sort of human error is just all wrong. Someone's going to make a ton of really bad decisions. Can we talk a little bit about, and look, you posted about this, right? There's this idea that, do you mind if I read this? Because I think this statement's actually kind of cool. Right, so yeah, this, was from, this was from a guy named Alan Nickel. The biggest impediment to enterprises getting value from artificial intelligence today is that we've convinced the world that tweaking hyperparameters is prestigious, high-value work, and curating a high-quality data set is tedious grunt work that should be outsourced, minimized, or automated. Do you want to talk? Because there's a big concept there and a lot of sort of things to unpack there. Do you want to talk about that a little bit for me? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, just a quick shout out to Alan Nichols from Raza. It's another Berlin-based startup. They are for text what we are for image and video. Yeah, maybe we should get him on the show as well. Yeah, he's a great guy, super smart. Both those co-founders are super. Um, great team, really great team. They, they've been helping us along. We, um, they're two years ahead of us and doing great things. Awesome. Yeah, so to come back to the quote, um, I was really happy to see him post that because it just verifies that they're seeing the same thing in NLP that we see in video and image. And there was a study done by Andrew and G where he took two teams to work on a neural network. Okay. And the model is working at 80%. Team A was only allowed to do ML ops work. So they were working on the algorithm, semi-supervised learning, unsupervised learning, GANs, synthetic data generation, all the things that you hear about in the media, um, SOTA. And team B was cleaning up and adding data. And they had a competition to see who could improve the model the most. The team A that was doing ML ops improved the model by like almost 0%, so none at all. And team B that was working the data was at 98.6% or something. I forget the exact figures, but it was the... the, the... So it's more than zero. Yeah, closer to one. <laughs> if you're talking about in a binary world, yeah. Yes, yes. That's not to say MLOps is useless. I mean, MLOps has got its time and place. You know, if you want to get inference speed down or if you want to get from that 98% to 99.99%, you need MLOps for sure. But doesn't it make sense then? I mean, if you really think about it, doesn't it make sense then that it's the MLOps side that actually should be outsourced so you can spend more time, just have that backend stuff set up so you can have the front end just actually working on the data and data cleaning? Is that, does that not make sense? Oh, I've, it's funny, I met a team yesterday or the day before, for the first time that actually did it that way. Their team is labeling data and they're outsourcing the MLOps with the perception that the technology is known and understood and you need a model that's good enough, but your your competitive advantage comes from a great data asset. Yeah. And to your point, cleaning up that data asset is super tedious. I mean, we spoke to some autonomous driving teams from really well-known logos that I won't mention here. And we said, how do you clean up your data? And they said, we start in the top left corner of the image and we scan horizontally across and work our way down to the bottom right-hand corner of the image and make sure that every mask is the same color, every annotation has got the right attribute, the mask is well-placed on the object, and that's their QA process. Right. This, this is insane. That's a lot of manual work. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. Did you laugh internally when you heard that? I mean, I guess you can't really say that, but yeah, that's insane. Well, we got excited because we had model playground. At that stage, it was two years ago, we had model... Um, our error finder feature in production. So it was something we were working on and it just, it got us excited because, you know, when you build a startup, especially in our space, we have a lot of competition in the space and you think, man, are we really able to compete here? And for us, always we came back to basic principles. Do the problems still persist in the market? So are 60 or 70% of projects that go into this direction still failing? Yes. Okay, why? And it comes down to the same points. There's no substitute for ground truth for ground truth data set. Processes on how to build ML are still not established or being established. So you break them down to the principles. Then you hear a story like this and you say, okay, well, even these really advanced teams that are working with SOTA in San Francisco are struggling with the topics that we're trying to solve here. So yeah, we think we have a chance. But it's so interesting. I ask this in so many different verticals, particularly when it comes to you know, employing technology to take tedious work away, you know, that humans can't do really well. 
right? So that humans can then not get fired, but focus on the stuff that they can do really well, right? Exactly. So, and I always, I ask this in other verticals, I'll ask it here too. When you go in not to pitch or to sell, but just to explain what Hasty does, and you get a little pushback like this, I won't, you know, you didn't mention the name of the, the nameplate, and they say, no, we've already got that taken care of, we just do it like this, and you're like, oh my God, if they just saw how we did it, like it's exciting, right? Because you figured this should be a great sale. What is the reaction you get from the people to whom you're speaking when they finally figure out, th there must be an epiphany moment, right? When they say to you, wait a second, wait, are you telling me that if we do it like this, that we can take months worth of work, turn it into days or hours, I don't know, you tell me, but also have the accuracy be, I don't know, frac I mean, factors higher? Like, do they freak out when they figure this out? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you, you look for certain things when you build a product. You look for the word love. We love using it. Yeah. And yeah. you look for wow. And uh, we've started to get in demos really, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> but it's it's a little bit this, um, you know, the, the best annotators in the world. And it's, you know, I don't want to talk down annotators. They do a fantastic job and they yeah. do a job and so it's really tough. But the best annotators in the world have a 6% error rate. And it's not surprising. It's really tough work. Yeah, it's super hard work. So to come back to your qu your question, it, it feels a little bit sometimes, you know, there's a statement, first they think I'm crazy, then they shout at me, then they love me. Right. So um, I was looking at my whiteboard because I have all well. these, I've, you saw me turn my head, I'm looking at my whiteboard because I have all these phrases on my whiteboard. That's one of them, actually. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we get that. So we say, for example, uh, we get a question from a client says, can we do consensus scoring between annotators? And we say, well, we don't believe in that as a philosophy. We want the neural network to do that because you're basically 5xing your annotation cost. And it's not a job that annotators are great at. So right. let's rather put this onto the neural network. And they say, yeah, yeah, we get that. But can we still do the consensus scoring? Okay, again, so our philosophy is a little bit different. So you go through it and then they get once you walk through it and show how it works, then you right. get the, wow, okay, great. Okay, right. now we can actually change our process. Yeah. And that for me is what's the point. The, that's like the cracks. When people ask me, what is Hasty? Are we reinventing the wheel? Are we recreating neural networks? No. But we're changing a process. And that's the hardest thing to change is the development process and cycle because that's human behavior. Yeah, it's and that such requires a, trust. It's such a great example. So I want to give you another equivalency in the insurance space, right? So I do this massive insure tech podcast. We talk to people about you know digital digital transformation in the insurance space, and you'll see where this is going in a second. And some insurance companies look at it and say, "Yeah, yeah, all of our PDFs are online," and you're like, "No, no, no, you're missing the point. If you're just taking your PDF and putting it online, you're not changing the process at all." So it's not making anything more efficient. You're just putting it online. And it sounds mm. like it's the same thing you're saying. Like until they figure out, oh, if we change the process, then everything else changes. That's when they really buy into stuff, yeah? Exactly. Exactly. So for us, a big topic is, you know, we believe we're bringing agile methodology to machine learning. So yeah, we have like to it. pay that statement forward and say, okay, that's what agile methodology means this is where you can be agile and respond to feedback from your neural network yeah. but that means that you know teams that are working at scale already and have 
tens or hundreds of annotators working have to change the way they've been briefing this in and setting it up. And as we mentioned, it's really tough work, so it's a high-pressure environment. Yep. And in a high-pressure environment, environment, the last thing you want to do is change things because that yeah. creates risk. And, and so that's, you know, I actually, in our sector, I don't believe our biggest competition is our competition. I think our biggest competition is the status quo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just took the words right out of my mouth. Your biggest comp your biggest competition actually is people not wanting to change. Like, it's okay. We yeah. get it. This is really fancy and great technology, but we're just going to keep doing it the same way we've always been doing it. Yeah. But we've seen brave companies. We've seen companies that have understood what we're trying to do. Right. Us or some of our close competitors and embraced it. Yeah. And they will be the next winners because they're just able to do we're able to i mean and we created a neural network in four days that can identify components on a pcb reliably that's amazing just with a different flow with four people right they and four people who don't me. have the expertise to do it in other words these are not people that have because you did it i'm not <laughs> denigrating you or insulting you but like that's not no your full-time job no i mean fortunately arduino's got this wonderful thing on their website where they've got a 3d model that you can click on and tells you the names of all the components and that's what i was using to label the images but that's I had no amazing. clue what anything on a pcb was right. i'm also not a machine learning engineer but now i've created a neural network that can do quality assurance and manufacturing on a pcb right thanks Sid. so can i ask you this when you showed that to your potential client right in other words this is just a bunch of people that don't know anything about pcbs again no insult intended you go to the Arduino website, you get all the labeling and stuff like that. You spend the weekend doing this, right? Then you come back and show it to the client. Does the client just go like, you must be kidding me? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, that wow moment was great. Unfortunately, the client knew quite a lot about PCBs. That's why <laughs> we did it. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a nice call. Awesome. Is there any way to, like, so who owns this data? In other words, is all your stuff cloud-based it must be right yeah we're every cloud we're cloud-based but that's a great question and that's a bit of a usp for us the ownership for us because we're not reliant on transferred learning so right. we're not reliant on building this silver bullet model that can solve all models right i understand rather we say let's take domain specific data assets and leverage that in a, in a good way and in a fast way um, that means we're not reliant on reusing the data set that's built by our clients for downstream customers, which means we don't do it. So they retain ownership of the image. They retain ownership of the training data that gets added to that image, and only they can license their models. And so that's become a bit of a USP for us because... Interesting. As, as, you know, uh, as we were talking earlier, the source of your future competitive advantage will be your data asset. Yeah. So if you are random large company A and you build a data asset that's doing a fantastic job and your provider then gives that access to that data asset to all of your competitors, you've just commoditized your unique selling point. Yeah, instantaneously. Yeah. So it is for us a USP and it's something that's become a big decision criteria when, when switching to Hasty because teams are starting to realize that. And it's not the algorithm. Unless you're IBM or Facebook, one of those that are actually recreating neural networks and redefining them, it's likely that's what, what's going to differentiate you is not your neural network, but your training data. Yeah. So you need to focus on that and you need to make sure that that's clean, it's actionable, it's been mobilized, everyone's got access to it. And what's even harder is especially for our sector, we, we're very active in agriculture, manufacturing, and mining, those sort of heavy industries. Right. 
more often than not, you have a subject matter expert that is transferring their knowledge into a neural network. Right. So you taking your experts and your team and putting the knowledge in the neural network, you have to protect that. Well, so that was actually going to be my next question. How is, if the data asset is valuable, right? If that's where their USP is, mm-hmm. how do they protect that data so that other people don't have access to it? And do most companies understand how to do data protection or is that something else that they need to be trained how to do as well? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a great question because the, uh, especially in Germany, uh, which is slowly changing, it used to be a very strict, my data doesn't leave my factory. Right, right, right. Policy. So they only run it on their own internal servers. Yeah. But then your reliance on your protection of your servers being up to standard with the cloud providers out there, which it won't be. They have no. massive teams working on data protection and, right. and you don't. So that we've seen that change as well, which has been great. Teams are being smarter about putting things in a cloud and linking clouds in smart ways. So Amazon S3 solution for this is pretty great. Uh, Microsoft has it with, with Blob Storage as well. And that works well for us. But yeah, I think it's we're seeing more and more people get comfortable with it. Uh, the conversations aren't as traditional as they used to be. The fact we host Hasty um, in the cloud provider as well, and they, the only question we get asked is where are the servers, and we we pick Belgium because it's politically neutral in Europe. Right. UN has, is hosted there, and then everyone forgets about that, and we move forward. So as long as we've got the ISO standards and other regulations in place, um, it's fairly easy uh, for us. So so yeah, I would say now more and more that's becoming relatively easy. The last remaining component that was challenging was HIPAA. Got it. So it's, yeah, the health policy in the States, uh, but that's actually also fine thanks to Amazon S3. There's a great system that if we are using S3 and the permanent storage of the image is never in our servers, but theirs, we no longer a data processor, which makes it easier to work on the images. Also, we don't have access to the projects. We're not allowed to look or look into any of the projects that are being built in Hasty unless the client says, please look at our project to help us with this problem. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because I think all of us have been in situations where you call some service provider and say, hey, can you help me on this? And they say, I can't see it. Because you yeah. have password protected, it's encrypted or whatever. I mean, it's a high-quality problem to have. But I think at the end of the day, like, have you seen any recent leaks? Like, how hard is it for people, you know what I mean? Does this data ever get leaked accidentally? Yeah, but more often than not, it's not because of a software setup. So I know one very large company that mm-hmm. transfers data from the annotation team to the machine learning team via email. Oh, God. Please tell so me no. the, Really? Yeah. And it's a, you wouldn't expect it from this very large company. I don't want to know, but yeah. yeah. So leaks come in that form. But in terms of like somebody really hacking an, an Amazon S3 connection to our server, I think it's it's harder to do that than it is to do social engineering or something like this to to get access to it, yeah, especially in a state where people are, are transferring things by email. So this is maybe a little bit of an in the weeds question, but something I'm really curious about. 
Well, engineers and programmers have said to me that it can be easier to like understand somebody else's code, right? If it's properly commented and documented. You know what I mean though, right? In other words, if you're just writing code, you, you just by looking at it, sure, you can read it, but if it's documented and commented on, you can figure out, okay, that's exactly where that's happening and focus on that. But do mm -hmm. you think the same can be true for data? Do you know what I mean? Like if, if the presumption is that data is rarely used as it's given or as re received, right? If you're mm -hmm. changing stuff inside, or is it necessary to comment on it, or is it is it similar at all, or not really? Yeah. So yeah, your your last question triggered it. So is it necessary to comment on it? Absolutely. So, and it's definitely a big topic. So it's no secret that medical sector is a big sector for vision AI, helping yeah, with radiology. Sure. Of you know, I mean, it's a sector that's based on on visualizing uh, things in the body. And we've spoken to enough teams that say their biggest issue is the way two doctors in different regions label an image is entirely different because of the underlying uh, philosophy in how they learn medicine. Right. So now you say, okay, well, great. We train this neural network to identify cancer, but how people identify cancers in different regions differ. So for something as sort of, as you would think as homogenous as that, uh, there, there are vast differences that make a significant impact to the resulting neural network. But yeah, a guideline on how you've labeled the data asset, why you've done it in a certain way, which attributes you're using. So for example, we're labeling cars and I choose to give each car color its own label class. Right. Or I just label car and it's an attribute afterwards. There's merits to both and why you choose one or the other, depending on what your vision task is. If somebody else is going to use that, you have to give them that structure, the thinking behind that structure and the implication. Because if anyone picks it up, it's it also it'll end up being a little bit like plumbers. Yep. Every time you get a new plumber in your house, the pre the new plumber says the last one did a terrible job. <laughs> so I was it the wrong way. Yeah, <laughs> this sucks. Who did this work? Yeah, all software engineers, I think, sometimes do the same when you get a new person to look at somebody else's code. Uh, unless it's well documented, they're right. going to say they did a terrible job. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think the nuance here and the complexity here is yet to be understood. You know, we, we're at the, the beginning of this journey where we're still trying to identify things in an, in an image. Yeah. We're very far from getting deeper information. So not only is there a person in there, but what are they doing? What is their intention? What are they interacting with? Um, are they having a good day? These are all nuanced levels of information that increase the complexity of the annotation task significantly. And with that increased complexity, needs for documentation and how you've done it and how you've approached it increase as well. So you were talking about the Rasa team, right? And how you're doing that they do for natural, natural language processing. So for text and for that type of stuff, the same type of things that you're doing for imaging. And I'm just thinking a few days ago, I had a conversation with somebody and I could tell by the tone in their voice that they weren't excited about some part of the conversation. Is there a use for this, you know, for the same type of tagging and data labeling for audio? that there is for video still images and for text? And is that getting done as well? Yeah, definitely our team is working on this. Uh, I think across the board. 
I, mean, I can tell when well, if I can empathize when people are not excited. I think we're super high in the frustration curve with the technology at this stage. You know, I mentioned the statistic. We, when we started Hasty, we found a report that said 60% of projects fail that go into this direction. Right. We found another report last year that said 87% of the projects fail. So it's the problem's getting worse, not better, which is you know, a, a challenge. And a lot of what we do, we spoke to um, another company in the industrial sector three weeks ago, and the whole team was so jaded and skeptical of what you can do. And we really had to show and not tell because they had such bad experiences and burnt their fingers in the past. So right. yeah, to your point, yes, there are uh, people with a similar approach to hasty across all types of data. And there are people that are working on multiple sources of data. So you could get a version of hasty that's focusing on only error finding, but only error finding for both audio and visual. Right. Right. So there's different ways to segment this problem which is, I think, why we're in such a competitive space. Uh, but they certainly are working on it, and a lot of people are trying to, to approach this. There's just there's a lot of complexity here in, in how to implement this, but I think there's also a lot of reward if you can get it right. Yeah, so, I mean, that was kind of the last thing I was going to ask you is, you know, with compute power still expanding, like, rapidly, mm -hmm. with the cloud out there, right, so giving you the flexibility to not host stuff locally, and with bandwidth increasing, you know, 4G, 5G, pick it, you know, pick a name. It doesn't really matter to me. Do you see that when these, I won't even call them incremental, but when you have these step changes, do you see changes in the way you and teams like yours can operate on data faster and just more efficiently as technology changes, right? In other words, I edit audio, I edit video, and I got an M1 Mac, right? And it just cut the, the processing time in a third. And it blew me away. Do you see the same thing in the stuff that you're doing as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we already, you know, it's, we're seeing changes today. We now are running rather complex models on low-powered tablets. And wow. you just think five years ago, and these guys are taking a photo with a tablet, and it's breaking out this image in in such detail where you would need a fairly powerful GPU to do that three years ago. Or four years ago, you can now do it on a tablet. There's a few things that led to this: improved neural networks and architectures, sure. um, more efficient neural networks and architectures. But it's it just opens up this realm of possibility where you now, if you can run a complex model on a tablet, it's amazing. So you know, essentially, what we're doing is we're teaching machines how to identify and see the world the same way we do. So right. if you believe in this sort of robotic future where you've got all these wonderful things like in, in at-home help from a robot that can interact and do everything as a, as a butler would or anything like that. They, they need to see the world the same way you see the world. Right. And unless you want to cover everything with QR codes or put everything on a grid. Yucky. It's, it's not exactly a great solution, but a lot of that starts to open up when you can run these models on such small devices. All of a sudden the robotic sector the possibilities just broaden significantly. Right. Okay, I'll leave you with this because, I, again, I feel like I could go on forever. When I was studying Japanese my first or second year in college, I can't remember, the guy who was teaching, up, teaching us was studying, but he was getting his PhD in linguistics, 
And, you know, he would be up night after night after night just going back and checking, like, the development of language and language development and word development. And he would come into class some days just, like, completely burnt out from that because we take language for granted because we just use it every day. Do you get the same feeling sometimes when you're going through this stuff as you see processing increasing, as you see recognition increasing, as your technology gets better? Does it sometimes, like blow you guys and the team away like i can't believe we just did that kind of thing because things are so much better today than they were yesterday or are you just too deep inside of it to know what it changes because the step changes are so small <laughs> so gradual do you know what i mean a little bit of both we we are very close to the wood or the trees in the forest um, yeah. so sometimes we do need to take a step back but i was you know we have an onboarding task in the team where everyone that joins hasty has to label a data asset yeah for sure you got to label data. Yeah. And if you don't have an intimate empathy with how tough that is, I don't think you can do this job well. Cannot. But, you know, with the team growing as it is now, it, it means that we have far more people that are not technical uh, labeling data. Yeah, and yeah. you then just take, uh, you know, a person that was sitting next to me yesterday trained a neural network to identify all the cable cars in San Francisco in a day. Right. You think this guy has never, he's never ever worked in, in anything data. It's a, it's a business person with a sales background that was in past life working in the autonomous, uh, the automotive sector. Right. Has just trained a neural network to identify cable cars in San Francisco. I want to do this so badly right now. You're making me crazy. I want to try this so badly. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So I think you do pause at, at moments and think, okay, wow. You know, if this person can do it in a day, we had a, we had a, a vision at some stage where we said, okay, what are the goals for Hasty? Right. What do we want to achieve? And Alex, my co-founder on the product side, said, I think the average Speti owner, so a Speti is like a little off-license or um, a shop where you can buy sweets and, and beer and whatever. Got it. He said, for me, the average Speti owner should be able to train a neural network for an application in their shop. It was a stretch goal and it was like a pipe dream. And it was, we should make it so easy to do that, that a Speti owner could do it. Yeah. So like a, just a design principle, right? right? But we're actually not far away from that. I was going to say, if the sales guy could come in and nothing against salespeople, I've done it. But if a sales guy came in and know nothing about it and train a neural network to understand the cable cars in San Francisco in one day, yeah, you're close if you're not there already kind of thing, yeah? Yeah. And when we said it, we were like, this is a pipe dream. Maybe we can do this in 10 years. Right. Two years later. There you are. We're kind of there. <laughs> kind of there. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I think the exciting part, just to extrapolate that out, is it means if you're a subject matter expert working in a company that you maybe have a technical knowledge, but not a machine learning engineer. Right. But you know your subject matter. You know. Yes entomology better than anyone else knows entomology you can train a neural we had i'm allowed to say this the head of neurosurgery at michigan university trained a neural network to identify neurons in the brain right in like four hours and created twenty two thousand annotations with this automated automation process and now has done it wow no, but it's, it's also i mean it, it gives them an unfair advantage because they understand how neural networks work Right, right, right. The nodes, the calculations, yeah. sending yeah. signals through. Yeah, that's meta into meta, right? Because they understand it, they <laughs> do it, and they're checking that thing that they know about. It's kind of weird, but really kind of cool. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, Tristan. Look, I have so many more questions. I feel like I should have you come back on again, but I want to let you go. We've been at this already for 45 minutes, which is amazing since the time passed by really quickly. I will let you go. Tristan Riyard, a co-founder and the CEO of Hasty.ai. That was awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well, too. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me, and I'd be happy to come back. Awesome.